have your Bible this morning, uh, let's turn back to Romans chapter 8. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, this is where we were. Last week we, was Mother's Day, so we, we took the week and, uh, and appropriately talked to uh, uh, the moms about uh, the relationship to the Word of God and looked at a great example back in uh, uh, the Old Testament. But uh, I wanted to get back and finish this up today as we're moving through Romans chapter 8. You remember that uh, we started to talk about the, the heresy and the, and the, and the bad teaching of, of what we know as Calvinism, uh, commonly known today in the 21st century and even in the latter part of the 20th century, it reshaped itself and it's called Reformation theology. And, uh, you know, as we've been coming through the book of Romans, I think it's important that as we, Romans is such a doctrinal book and has such an impact into our lives as far as uh, what it teaches us that is right, that this is where you find the verses that come up against all the heretical teachings that, that, uh, that you find. So as we kind of bump into them as we come through them, we'll, we'll deal with them and, and look at them and we'll see how, that they, uh, uh, how they one at a time and lay them out and show you the right context on it. But you remember, we, we got to Romans chapter 8, verse 29, and, and here's what it said. It says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Father, we thank you and praise you for the opportunity to come to your word today. We pray you'll continue to bless us in everything that we do and give us the uh, things that we need to see today. Help these young Christians uh, to grow and the older Christians to keep establishing themselves in the, in the Word of God. And, and Lord, we just thank you and praise you for all you do for us now. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, you remember I talked to you uh, when we got into this verse. I talked to you about uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19. And we talked about the importance of, of heresy. Paul told the church at Corinth that, you know, that heresy that, that you're going to find is, is not a bad thing. It's a bad thing in the sense that it's a bad teaching. But a true Bible teaching church, a true church that stands on the Word of God and teaches the Word of God, much like this one does, you, we never have to be worried about heresy because the truth always takes care of the heresy and anybody who's involved in heresy uh, you know, when you stand for the truth, it exposes it. You know, and, and that's the key. And that's, the, that's why Paul said heresy approves. It, it shows you who's approved of God. In other words, it always shows you the truth because of the fact that an error up against truth, the truth will always win out. And I told you that the number one point that you're dealing with uh, when you're dealing with a person who holds this position is the fact that they, they absolutely know nothing about the Bible. I want to walk you through today, and last time I, I showed you some of the basic things, but today I want to, I want to base this on, some, on the principles that you want to use. In your life as you grow and you work and where you work and you deal with people, you know, you're going to come across all the different heresies sooner or later that uh, you find. And you're going to find when you, when you do that that you need to know how to deal with them. And certainly it won't be long before you find someone in your life or you'll talk to someone who believes in the bad teaching or the heresy of Calvinism, also known as predestination. And let me just say this again for those of you that may be listening to this tape that didn't hear the first tape. The concept of Calvinism, sometimes called predestination or sometimes called Reformation theology, is simply this. 
it means that, that what they teach is that someplace way beyond Genesis chapter 1-1, before the Bible even got recorded, way beyond that, God looked down through time in His foreknowledge, and God saw a man, and God chose some men and women to go to heaven and chose some women, uh, men and women to go to hell. And this is where the concept of predestination, your destination was predetermined by God uh, before anything ever happened. And of course, uh, you're going to see today the absolute lunacy of that, kind of, of that kind of reasoning. I have never met a person who believed in Reformation theology or Calvinism who ever knew anything about his Bible. Uh, I've never met anybody who could ever put anything together other than the basic little format that they believe. And we talked about that last time, how important it is to understand the whole scope of the Bible. I mean, the very idea that someone would claim to have the eternal decrees of God of predestination, and yet, as I gave you last time when we ended, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, that you couldn't sit there and open up your Bible and explain to me the, the, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of God. I mean, and yet the Bible goes on to say in that verse that those things, uh, you can't even know the love of Christ or have the fullness of God till you can comprehend these things. And yet they want to pretend, they want you and me to believe that they have this great eternal knowledge of uh, the so deep in the Bible, and yet uh, many of them think of apostle and epistle or a husband and wife. They have no idea, you know, how the Bible lays itself out. It's a ridiculous position. And Calvinism or Reformation theology is, is, for the most part, and I've dealt with it for years and years and years, it's based up on most part of the deeper life crowd. People who, what I call wannabes. Uh, people who want to know the Bible, don't want to invest the time, and so therefore they get some truth. And you find it in many, many deals. Charismatics are the same way. You f they'll get one little central thing out of the Bible, and that is what they work on, and they know nothing else about the Bible. I asked a Calvinist one time, and this goes to show you how, how really, and I hate to use the word stupid. I don't like that word. I, I don't call, I've never called my kids stupid. Uh, I've never called anybody in a stupid. I don't like the word, but sometimes it is appropriate, and especially when it comes to be with people with heresy, Bible heresy. And this kind of shows you how, how, how stupid they really are. Now, now, when you're dealing with somebody that's a Calvinist or any cult, you want to remember this. You've got one of two kinds of people you're dealing with. Remember I gave you a couple of weeks ago, I think it was the, well, it was the last time we were together on this, I told you the two places in Proverbs there where it said, one said, answer a fool according to his folly. The other one said, answer not a fool according to his folly. Well, you've got one that you do answer, and you take him to task, and you drop him in his tracks. And the other one is somebody that comes in, and they have the right questions. They're just confused. People in heresy are one of two brands. They're either someone that is ignorant of the facts and the truth and someone that you can sit down and you can, you can help them and work them through it, or you got someone who is dishonest when it comes to the truth. It'll never be a third one. It'll be one or the other. And when you deal with somebody, and I said this the other week, when you deal with somebody that's coming in and, or you're talking with them and they're just confused on it, they don't know anything about it, and when you show them the Bible, they gravitate that way, you want to deal with them on that level. You certainly don't want to come down hard on somebody like that. You really want to help them. But if you get the other crowd, you get the guy who, as the Bible says, is conceited in his own, uh, is, is wise in his own conceit, and he's somebody who is, he, he puffs himself up as somebody who really knows the Bible when absolutely he knows nothing, the best thing you can do for him is take him down a couple pegs. And the more you humiliate him spiritually, 
the more the Holy Spirit of God can take it and deal with it. Because their problem is ego. It's all about, it's all about credibility. And that's why they want to talk with you about the Bible. They want to engage you in the Bible. And most people fall for that because the moment you engage them in the Bible, you give them credibility. If you will not deal with them on the Bible and say, I'm not even going to open a Bible with you because you're, what, you, what you teach is so stupid, it doesn't even worth the time to open it. I can defeat you and show you how you're dead wrong without even opening the Bible. That's what you want. That's what you want. You deny them the credibility and you put them into a no-win situation. And when you start to deal with cults, Rule number one is never lose control of the argument. Never lose control of the argument. And the reason why you have to, and the way you can do that is because not only do you have to know your Bible, but you have to know what they believe better than they do. And that's where it takes you spending the time and, and learning your own Bible and getting the thing down. We've got such a host of young Christians that, uh, that have come in in the last year and a half. And, you know, our church is basically kind of divided. We've got the, the Christians that have been around for a while, and you really, you know, you're in the Bible Institute, and you really got a handle on things, and you're moving along. And we've got a bunch of other people that have come in that are doing really well, but you need to get to the point where you get up, uh, as far as the Bible's concerned, on a, on, a, on a level playing field where you really can now grasp some things. And I was thinking about this for the last couple of weeks. We have, um, we have suspended Bible Institute, uh, which we normally met the first Saturday of every month. We suspended Bible Institute for the summer because there's just so much going on. But what I was thinking about doing is this. I, and I don't have a date. It's gonna, we're going to do it in June. We're going to do it in July. And we're going to do it in August. And we're going to take a Saturday morning, one Saturday morning and each Saturday. And what I want to do, if you younger Christians will, uh, will give me three Saturdays, and you do the work that I give you between the first month and the second month, in a three months time, I, I can actually get you to the point where you really understand conceptually and structurally how your Bible goes together. I think a lot of times you get a lot of information, but you don't know what to do with the information. And you get a lot of material, but you don't really know how to handle it. Now, let me just say this to you. If you're going to shine up and then show up the first one and not show up the second one and then maybe show up the third one. Or if you're going to show, sign up and show up for one and not the two, you know what? Don't waste your time and my time, okay? If you really want to learn your Bible structurally, if you want to have an infallible format that it will break down your Bible and in three months' time, if you do, if you give me the time on Saturday morning and you, you do the work that I tell you to do and I'll show you how to do it, I'll even help you do it. I guarantee you, by August, you will understand in a, in a great way the context of your Bible and how to put everything in the right place from that point on. I told the Institute folks when we started, two problems people have with the Bible, and I think we all have this problem. The bottom line is, when we're reading the Bible, you know, how many times have you started to read the Bible and it gets boring just like that? Or you don't know where you're at. And you feel bad because you think, well, I should, I should have more excitement about reading this. Well, how much excitement can you have about a demabag, a bagata huba, a huba guy, but got a bigger bag, and a bigger bag, but got this guy? I mean, you read the Bible, but you don't know what to look for in the Bible. You read the Bible and you see something, but you don't know where to do it and where to place it in relationship to your own life. That is the two basic fundamental problems everybody has with the Bible. I can fix those problems for you. 
I can take you in three months' time. If you give me the time on that Saturday morning, and, uh, and you give me that time, and you do the work that I tell you to do between those two points in time, you'll come out of this thing at the end of summer with really no really time invested other than the minimal, but the work you've got to do. And I guarantee you, you will come out of here understanding the context of how the Bible puts together. Because that is the first step in dealing with anything. And it's certainly the first step of dealing with people like this. You've got to come to the point in your life where you learn your Bible. You're not going to go to sleep, come to church, tithe, do all the things for about three or four years, and then suddenly up in heaven there's a big, big chalkboard up there, and God walks over and says, All right, all right, today we got uh, Bob Alexander today. Yeah, he's a good little guy. He's been down there, been going to church now about five years, and uh, been faithful, doing everything right. Uh, so we're going to give him the big dump of spiritual knowledge tonight, his night. He's going to wake up tomorrow morning. He's going to know his Bible. He's paid his dues. He's went to church. He's done everything right. He's got his life cleaned up, and everything is just fine. Okay, so while you sleep that night, the big gospel dump truck backs up over your house. The angels of God lift up the roof, and all the spiritual stardust comes down and permeates in your little brain. You wake up in the morning knowing the Bible. It would be nice if it worked that way, but it doesn't work that way. But I'll show you how it does work. I have perfected a system in the 35, 40 years of my life of studying the Bible that worked for me. And if it works for me, it'll work for you. And I can make it better for you because it took me 15, 20 years to figure it all out. I got it figured out now and I can get it to you in about three months' time where you start to have the consistency. If you want to learn your Bible and you want to get this material in the right format where you can begin to learn how to deal with these things, this is for you. But I'm telling you again, don't waste my time. If you're not going to sign up and be there uh, all the time and get the thing going and do it something with it, then you know what? It, it, it won't work for you. And it won't, certainly won't work for me. I'm looking for those that will give that time, and we will, I will show you how to put your Bible together. And what we'll do is get you up to speed with the, uh, with the, uh, with the older folks, at least on that level where you begin to understand the Bible. Because this is what it takes. It takes the ability to know your Bible, and then once you know your Bible, and that's our first step, to get you in time to know more about what they believe when they believe themselves. Now, I talked to you a couple of weeks ago about a back door, how that when I deal with somebody, I, I deal with somebody uh, not on the face-up value of the Bible that's a heresy because I'm not going to give them any credibility. I will use things about the Bible. I think one of the most hilarious things that a Calvinist doesn't even know, and this shows you the level of the word stupidity that they are in their life. The thing that they don't even know is they don't even know, if, and I told you this a couple of weeks ago, if you have your King James Bible there, and probably most of you have looked it up and marked it now, you'll find in the front of that Bible a dedicatory. And that dedicatory was written uh, by the translators of why they, why they put out the King James Bible. So you would know where they were at, what they were up against, and the heresies that they were struggling with. And of course, in their, in their dedicatory, they mentioned that the King James Bible was written basically against two people groups. One of them is called the Popish uh, person. That would be, i.e., the Roman Catholic Church. The other one was conceited brethren. And of course, that was the Calvinist of their day. Those were the two issues that they were struggling with and they knew that were heresy. The absolute lunacy that somebody who believes the King James Bible is the Word of God would get up and teach heresy of Calvinism and don't even know that the dedicatory of the Bible you're preaching that of was written against what you believe? See where it's at? 
see the level of, of inconsistency we're at? Had a Calvinist one time, I, I kind of baited him up, and I said, are you at me? He had him explain the whole thing of Calvinism to me. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, if what you're saying is true, and Calvinism is, Calvinism is based on the eternal decrees that God, before the foundation of the world, looked down and predestined some to go to heaven and go to hell, and we take your five points literally. Remember I gave you the five points last time? One of those five points was irresistible grace, and the other one was depravity of man. The fact that no man at all, no woman at all, in any state, in any time, in any place, could ever, could ever get to God, and God had chosen the ones that were going to go to heaven and chose the one to go to hell. Want me to show you how stupid the process is? What happens when a baby dies then? You know what I had a Calvinist tell me? Calvinist told me that when a baby dies, that baby goes to heaven or hell based on where God shows him or not. I'd like to get up and preach that at a little baby's funeral. Think that'd fly? Why, they <laughs> run you out of town on a rail before you got halfway through the sermon. You see, that kind of, that kind of goofiness goes totally against what we saw in Romans chapter 7. Remember? Romans chapter 5. Remember? Deuteronomy, where I took you back and showed you how God covers the little babies. Predestination is for a bunch of wannabes. It's absolutely ludicrous. I mean, it's absolutely. And I showed you, I showed you last time how you only find predestination four times in the Bible, two times in Romans chapter 8 and two times in Ephesians chapter 1, and none of the four times is it ever relating uh, to anything remotely connected with salvation. Now, today, uh, getting kind of past the, bringing us back up to speed, recap a little bit. Today, I'm going to show you how to deal uh, with this heresy, and again, how absolutely dysfunctional a Calvinist is when it comes to his Bible. And today we're going to see the second aspect of how he has no clue. And I'm going to show you the back door today. I'm going to show you how you want to deal with a Calvinist without opening up your Bible, but at the same time destroying him and denying him not only the credibility, but putting him in, in a position where he has absolutely no answers. And every, I can, you know, and this is the mistake that many Baptists make, and I just say Baptists because I'm more familiar with Baptists than I am. There's the mistake that most Christians make. They think that, you know, that when you're going to go up against a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon or whatever the case, or somebody, you know, that's a Christian that's messed up like a charismatic or, or uh, you know, and things like that, they think the thing to do is to, you know, I'll give you my verses and you give me your verses and uh, my verses will outprove your verses. It doesn't work that way. It, you know, it would be nice if it did, but it doesn't work that way. Unless you're finding somebody who is just dumb, stupid, and wonderful and just wants to know the truth and falls into it when he finds it. Most of the time that does not happen. No, you've got to get them in a place where they have no answers. You've got to ask them a question. Sandy, do you bring enough for everybody? No, but break it up in little pieces and pass it around your section over there. Next week, bring it up for everybody. That pretzel you got there or carrots? Oh, oh I'm sorry. I said it was orange. I thought it was a carrot. Because I got some dip in here. I thought we could pass the whole thing around in my pulpit that my first sergeant made me. Calvinists hate carrots. You see, this is the thing that got me into this thing. No. You want to put them in a position where you ask them a question and they have no answer. You want to always keep control of any situation. You always want to put them in a position where they don't have an answer to what you're asking them. Why do you want to do that? 
You want to do that because when they have no answer, the Holy Spirit of God, and they know they have no answer, even though their pride right now may not, may not allow them to, uh, to show you that, when they go home and they're all by themselves and the Holy Spirit of God starts kicking in on them, He's going to beat them six ways from Sunday, the fact that they don't have an answer. This is how you want to deal with any cult. And it, I'll show you how it all works here in just a few moments. Now, here's a principle I use in dealing with a cult, dealing with a heresy. It is the fundamental foundation verse you want to use. This one verse will destroy every heresy. I don't care what it is. Jehovah Witnessism, Mormonism, Seventh-day Disadvantages, it doesn't matter. Whatever the heresy is, whether it's in the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ, remember I told you they were both, this verse principle is what you want to start with. Maybe you don't give them this right out of the chute, but this is what you operate on. And it's found in Psalms 127, verse 1. And it's a great principle. Absolutely a great principle. And this is always in the forethought of my mind, and it's always the thing that I'm going after. And at some point, I'll give this to them, uh, but it's what I base what I'm going to do on. And it simply says this. And it's a simple little verse. Absolutely profound. Except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain that build it. Now, once you understand the impact of that passage, and you see how great this verse absolutely is, you were told in Matthew chapter 16, it tells you exactly uh, what the church is built on. Absolutely tells you in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when the Lord's having his little conversation with Peter, he tells him exactly uh, when he builds his church what it's going to be built on. And then when you go to the, Ephesians, uh, in the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, it shows you the five elements that that church is, is, is put into that church. I'm telling you that to tell you this. If God, the true church, is the one that Christ built, you want to find the true church that Christ built, that's where you start. Everything else that's out there that isn't part of the true church that Christ didn't build, give me the verse. They labor in vain to build it. The bottom line is this. If Christ didn't build the teaching that you're teaching, then it's worthless. It's that simple. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain, <coughs> that build it. Now, I gave you two landmarks last time in Proverbs chapter 22 and 23. Those landmarks keep you on course coming down through history. One's in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. You want to find out what God is doing? You want to find out what the true God and the true teaching is in the Old Testament? You know, it's not much different from the Old Testament and the New Testament. You go into college, uh, you know, secular college, and you take an ancient history course, you've got the Babylonians, the, the Egyptians, the, you've, got the, uh, you've got the Syrians, you've got everybody, and they will teach it like they're all, they're all right, they're all good. You come into the New Testament, you've got the same thing. You got the Jehovah Witnesses, you got the Mormons, you got the Seventh day guys, you got the Charismatics, you got this, you got that, you got this teaching, you got that teaching. And everybody says, all these are okay. It's the same system. In both systems, Old Testament and New Testament, you got to find out where the true God and the true people of God and the true work of God is being done. You know how you do that? Two landmarks. You want to find the true God in the Old Testament and the true teaching in the Old Testament and a true way to get to God? What's that landmark? Israel. Well, I think it's the Babylonians. Shoot yourself. It's Israel. God fixed that thing with a landmark that if you're honest and sincere, you can find it. You know what it is in the New Testament? 
It's his church. It's the church that he built. Now, if you want to find out what the true church is <coughs> and where the true church is at and how to trace that thing through the Bible so you don't get in the wrong church, you got to know what the true church is. I told you a couple of weeks, last time we were together, you don't find the right church by looking for the right name. You don't find that. You find God's church not by what they called it, but by what they believed and trace it all the way through history. And that's what you got. That's what you got. Now, if you want to find the true church and what the true church believed, then you get the church that Christ built. See? That's the one you want to get. A Calvinist wouldn't have any on it. He couldn't tell you what church Christ built if his life depended on it. You know why? Not only does he not know the Bible, but he has even a less of clue about church history. And you cannot separate the Bible and church history. The Bible provides the doctrine. The church history provides the point of reference. And that's why I am so big in pushing all of you in that direction that you learn everything about it that you need to learn and try to get it all that you can do. That's why I want to start with you, you younger ones. Of course, anybody can come, but you younger ones. And I want to give you the Bible in a structure. That's where you're going to start. And from that point on, it is so simple and so basic the way I've got it done that anybody on this planet can get it. It's just that easy. And now when you find the true church, then you follow. You follow that church down through history and you watch what God is doing with it and you find out what they believe. Now most of this is real simple. I wish it was profound. Most of this is real simple. But when you start to deal with a Calvinist, who are so conceited anyhow, and so deep into the Bible, or as they think. Simple is not a word that's in their vocabulary. But, uh, but this is really pretty easy stuff, really. And the first big hurdle a Calvinist has to get over, or a Reformation theologist has to get over, is this. And it's really simple. It's, and I hate to be the master of the obvious, but the first thing that they got to get over that they don't have an answer to is a, why is it called Calvinism? Why is it called Calvinism? Why did they call the teaching Calvinism? I'll tell you why. Because it's named after the founder of the religion, John Calvin. Now, I'm a simple, basic guy. Calvin was born, Calvin was born sometime around 1509. He dies around 1546. Doesn't it bother you just a little bit that the guy who started what you believe wasn't born till 1,500 plus years after Christ was here? Now, maybe it's just me. That would bother me. That would bother me to the fact that when you go back and survey history, it's called Calvinism because it starts with John Calvin. And this teaching shows up 1,500 years after Christ uh, uh, shows up. And it's unheard of up to that period of time. How do you explain that? How do you explain that you've got a gap in what you believe for 1,500 years? Now, on top of that, you remember when you, have, you got Christmas presents or you got wedding gifts and you got four toasters? Six mixers? What do you do with that extra stuff? Huh? No, you take them back. What do you really do with them? You wait till the next wedding comes along, repackages, and give it to them. 
See, if you take it back, you've got to ask for the receipt, and that's always embarrassing. Just hide it. Give it to the next person that goes down a long green mile, so to speak, you know. That's what you do. You know what heresies do? They do the same thing. It started out as Calvinism. Was Calvinism from 1500 to 1600 to 1700 and 1800. When they got into 1900, they had to, they had to repackage it and sell it again. But this shows you how, and they did, they did that. They did that for a group of people that I call RDCs. Anybody know what an RC, RD, RDC, RDC, anybody know what an RDC is in Christianity? What it stands for? Anybody know? This is easy. What's an RDC in, in Christianity? RDC. Robert David Crystal. RDC. What's it stand for? What? Yeah, really dumb Christians. Very good, Zach. Ooh, here. Sit up here with me. Sit here on my right hand or I'll make your enemies your footstool. That's good. <laughs> oh, I'm impressed. Wow. That's good. RDC. Really dumb Christians. And so they repackaged it and they called it the second time around Reformation theology. But let me show you how stupid they is. It was called Calvinism because it started with John Calvin. They didn't like that. So somebody got the bright idea. Let's call it Reformation theology. You know what they did then? Reformation took place in 1540. They just redated the same thing to the Reformation, showing you it was the theology that came out of the Reformation. You know why? Because it wasn't around before. Well, it was. We'll see how that works in a minute. You got a 1,500-year gap. Now, if I was talking to a Calvinist, I'd ask him this. Do you know what fills that 1,500-year gap? He didn't have a clue. Calvinist couldn't lay this thing out of his leg. You put a gun to his head and cock it and say, I'm going to blow your brains out if you don't give me the right answer. he just have to look at you and say, shoot. He has no answer. You know who fills that 1,500-year gap? The true church fills it. You know how you know that? Because you can trace them by not their name, but by what they believe. How come in the first, second, and third century, the real mainstay of Christianity, and I know that these names don't mean much to most of you, in time I hope that it does, but how come the Monetists, the Donatists, the Novatians, the Nestorians, how about guys like John of Antioch? That'll bring us up through the first, second, and third century. How come they didn't teach what you believe about Calvinism. Do you even know what they taught? Of course you don't. Of course you don't. How come coming up in the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th century, guys like Henry of Lucerne, Savonarola, William of Orange out of Holland, the Policeans, Count Zindendorf, August Spondenberg, the Moravians, Mento Simons, how come they didn't teach what you teach and they are the ones that are absolutely holding the mainstay of Bible Christianity up in those time periods? How come up through the Dark Ages, the Polyseans, the Bogomiles, the Hussites, the Lombards, the Catherii, the Waldendians, the main group stays that through the Dark Ages and up to the 16 and 1700s were the mainline Bible teaching, Bible believing groups that God won the world to Christ with? How come they didn't teach it? How come they didn't teach it? Let me ask you a question if you're a Calvinist. Was Calvin from the true church line? 
You see, a Calvinist has such a minimum understanding of the history of the church and the Bible itself. He wouldn't know the true line of the church if it fell out of a tree and hit him on the head. He has never stopped and thought about what line of churches Calvin came from. He never stopped and asked himself about the landmarks back in the book of Proverbs. He never stopped and asked himself, wow, how come I believe what I believe today, but in the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century, the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th century, and up through, right up through, uh, to the Reformation with John Calvin, nobody on planet earth that was a Bible believer, that was part of the true line, ever believed one thing that I believe. Never asked himself that. Now I'll tell you why it's called Calvinism and Reformation theology. Because absolutely nobody in the true line of churches believed that in any form of it, in any shape or form of it, anywhere down through history till it started with John Calvin at the Reformation in 1540. That's why. But when you're a Calvinist and you don't know that, when you're a Calvinist and all you're into the deep things of the Bible, but you just forgot where your roots came from, you couldn't trace the true church and what it believed from Antioch and Acts, and that's another reason. Remember a couple of weeks ago I asked you a question when we were talking about this? I asked, if you're a Calvinist, let me ask you a question. How come in Genesis, in the Old Testament, you got Genesis, which is the, the defining book of the Bible, and then after Genesis you got Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which are four historical books. So in the Old Testament you got a the book that defines everything, Genesis is called the book of the beginnings, and then you have the next four books that are historical books, making four, or making five total. When you come to the New Testament, you have the same process, but it's reversed. Now you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the historical books, and then you have the book of Acts, which is the book that lays it all out and the definitive book. How come they're reversed? How come in the Old Testament the definitive book is first and then the four historical books are next and when you come to the New Testament the four historical books are first and the definitive book is after that? The answer to that question is something that a Calvinist will never be able to give you. And the answer to that is in a short form is that's how when you break that down and you understand that that's how you know what you're supposed to believe and that's how you know that a Calvinist, listen to me, a Calvinist, if you listen on the tape, a Calvinist is a heretic. He's got a religion that started 1,500 years by a man who was never part of the true line. Hang on, hang on. Now, not only does a Calvinism have no links or roots to the true church in any way, shape, or form in the New Testament, but they have no history as far as their belief and their teaching before 1560. Now this is why, again, going back to that, this is why they want the credibility issue. This is why they want, the, they want you to talk with them about the Bible. This is why they want you to, you to come and talk with them and open up your Bible and you give me your verses, I'll give you my verses and this dialogue about it and they want to prove to you wrong and you want to prove that they're wrong and so you go around in a nice big circle, waste three or four hours and you have a nice time and then you know what you do at the end? You wake up and you shake your hand and you say, well, this, we're just, brother, I guess we're just going to have to agree to disagree. That's not what you do with it. You drop him in his tracks like he's a 550-pound water buffalo that you just shot. 
You let him squander in the mud with a bullet right between his eyes. You send him on his way with his tail between his legs, thinking to himself when the Holy Spirit of God gets him alone, yeah, why don't I have any history? Well, I didn't let him know it, but that bothers me. That bugs me. How come I can't find anybody? How come the real mainstay, uh, how come the greatest missionary guys in a the, in the period of time back then, how come they didn't believe what I believe? Wow, why is it called Calvinism? Why is it called Reformation theology? Let the Holy Spirit of God work on him. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it. I don't ever talk to them about the Bible. Because what they want is desperately you giving them credibility. Before I'd ever deal with one of those, I'd simply ask them, hey, look, show me where you're at in 200. I know everybody in 200 to believe what I believe. Show me somebody to believe what you believe. You know what? I'll give you 50 who believe what I believe. You just give me one to believe what you believe. 50 to 1. That's a good deal, isn't it? I'll give you 50 for every... No, I'll give you 100 for every one you give me. That's a good deal. No, I'll give you a million for every one. You say, you couldn't get that ready. I'd find the million before you'd find the one. Safe bet. Except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain and build it. You see, when a man admits that he's a Calvinist, you're dealing with an absolute idiot or somebody who is absolutely dishonest when it comes to the Bible and Bible truth and church history. And I say that with charity. I'm not mad about it. I'm just saying, this is what you're dealing with. You don't find them in 200, 400, 600, 800, 1,000, 1,200, 14, 15. Oops, there they are. There they are, 1,560. Now, that's not the only problem they have. But that's a big hurdle right there. That's a good hurdle. But like the Bible says, this is just the beginning of sorrow. There's more problems they got. Now, let's talk about John Calvin, the man, the founder of your Reformation theology or the founder of of, of this or the, and, and how it lays itself out. Now, do you have any idea what the founder of your religion believed himself? What he taught? What his motive was for teaching it? A couple of weeks ago when we were here, I gave you the five, five bottom line concepts of Calvinism, the five points of Calvinism. And every Calvinist in the world will lay those out. But you know what? Did any Cal- could, you, could you answer me? Could you give me a clue where these five points ever showed up in history? In 1536, Calvin writes his book. There isn't a Calvinist in the world that probably knows what that name of that book is, and I guarantee you, if you find one that knows about the book, you never find one that read it. You know what the name of the book he wrote was? And this is where he lays out his first five points. Five points of Calvinism are found absolutely no place in history. Nowhere till Calvin writes him in his book in 1536, which is called the Institute of the Christian Beliefs. You know why he wrote that book? Oh, I guess you'd think he probably wrote it because he wanted to help God's people out. I bet you probably thought he wrote it because of the fact that he wanted to enlighten all of God's people. You know, you know why he wrote it? I'll tell you why he wrote it. Because it was a defense in his part against the king of Francis I of France because of the fact that Calvin was persecuting French Protestants because they weren't buying into Calvinism. The king put a decree on him or against him and, and held him up on charges. So he wrote the book, which every Calvinist in the world today got his teaching from, in defense of himself because he wanted to persecute Protestant Christians because they wouldn't believe what he believed. There's your guy. Nice guy. There's your man. There's your man. I'll tell you something else. Calvin taught and believed all of his life the Heidelberg Confession and the Westminster Confession. Is there a Calvinist on this planet who can explain to me what the Heidelberg Confession was or the Westminster Confession? Anywhere. 
Well, I'll tell you what some of it meant. You know what they taught? They taught that Jesus Christ was a begotten God before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. That's what the Heidelberg Confession, the Augsburg Confession, and also the Heidelberg Confession. He believed that and conspired to that all of his life. And that's exactly what the Jehovah Witnesses believed, that sometime before in Genesis 1-1, God begot himself into another God. Heresy. Heresy. I taught you the five points of Calvinism last time. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. And I went through each one of them. Now here's the five forgotten points of Calvinism. Here's the five points, and if you're a Calvinist, this is what your boy believed. This is what your man believed. The five forgotten points of Calvinism. First of all, Calvin was an amillennialist. You know what that means? It means he did not believe in the literal return of Jesus Christ. The second point is, is he allowed Bible believers to be persecuted or killed. The third thing is he called predestination God's eternal decree when it's found nowhere in the Bible. Calvin believed that the sacraments and the Bible were the way a man received Christ. He believed that infant baptism washed away sin. Now, that's your man? See, everybody wants to talk about the five points of Calvinism. Nobody wants to talk about the five forgotten points of Calvinism. Now, is that the kind of guy God's going to bring the true line of truth through to the real body of Christ? Is there anybody who, who is absurd enough to believe that? That's where the problems lie. He couldn't find the true line of his life dependent on it, neither could anybody that believes in Calvinism today. Anybody here? I mean, I got kids. I got kids that are probably in the junior high department that could lay out the two lines better than a Calvinist could. You got from Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen. You got two seeds, two wines, two nations, two religions, two brides, two lines, two Bibles, two churches, two men, two comings in the Bible, all the way through the Word of God. And a Calvinist couldn't lay it up his life dependent on it. Some of you could. So Calvin in the true line is he? You have any idea where Calvin got his inspiration for what he believed and developed it into what we know today as Calvinism? I'll tell you where he got it. I made a statement a little while ago. I said that Calvinism was not a uh, Calvinism was was not taught anywhere before John Calvin. That's a half truth. That's not exactly true, but it, it's true in the sense of Bible believers. Calvin made it no secret that his mentor and favorite theologian, theologian was a man by the name of Augustine of Hippo. Now, those of you that are familiar with church history, you might remember about our, our boy Augustine. Augustine was a Roman Catholic philosopher who lived around 400 A.D. And uh, uh, Augustine is the one who set up all the structure for the teaching for the Roman Catholic Church. It was Augustine who put forth, forth the concept of the Mass. It was Augustine who put forth, forth the concept and made it a doctrine of infant baptism. It was Augustine who brought all the philosophies and solidified them into doctrines in the early Roman Catholic Church. It was him that put forth the priesthood. It was him that put forth the idea of what we know as transubstantiation. That simply means that when you go to Mass and you sit down there and kneel down before the priest, the priest has a, 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 a cup of wine and he has a wafer in his hand. And he has the power by God through the concept put out by Augustine of transubstantiation. What does that mean? Transubstantiation. Trans, transforming a substance into something else. Transubstance, 
substance, trans-changing substance stance eation. Trans-changing substance into something else. In other words, taking the wafer, making it magically and mystically the real body of Christ, and taking the wine and making it mystically, magically the real blood of Christ. I mean the actual blood that was in Christ's vein. I'm not talking about a similitude or kind of like the blood or kind of like, you know, it was, it changes magically. A priest has the magical power through God to change the wine into, not like to, into the literal blood of Christ that was spilled for you on the cross. That little wafer that the nuns make, they has the power to change that into the actual body of Christ. In fact, you ever notice in a Catholic church when a guy goes in, he takes the thing, they put a golden thing under his, under his neck. You ever see that? You know why they do that? So God won't fall on the floor. You know where they keep those little wafers once they get consecrated? They keep them in a little gold box up on the altar. That's where God lives. You former Catholics, you know I'm telling you the truth. Out of a priest would make a mistake that, that, that you, 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 you drop that wafer or he drops that wafer and God falls on the floor, there's a six-hour progression that that priest has to go through to pick God up off the floor. You don't just pick God up like a piece of paper. That's substance of transiation. Pennsylvania 6, 5,000. Yeah, that, that's transubstantiation. That's what Augustine forged into the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And the, the absolute absurdity that God would take a man like Augustine who forged Satan's church and put the whole heresy together that he was responsible for more Bible believers being murdered and killed down through history than any other regime on the face of this planet. The idea that God would bring his truth to the true church through that organization, through a guy from Augustine to Calvin to you and me. Let me tell you something. If you're a Calvin and you're listening to this, you, you got to get on your knees and be thankful today. You know what you got to be thankful for? You ought to be thankful that stupidity is not a crime because if it was, you'd be doing 25 years of life. Augustine wrote a book. You know what it was? Of course you don't. City of Our God was the name of the book. Ever read it? Of course you haven't. In this book, ah, here's where we find the first clue in 400 A.D., of what predestination is and where it's at long before Calvin shows up. You know where we find it? We find it with Augustine in his book, City of Our God. When Augustine wrote the book, City of Our God, you know what he was talking about? Let me tell you what he was talking about in the short form. He was talking about that God had a city. Now, we all think that city is Jerusalem, don't we? Well, not in Augustine's mind. Augustine was teaching and formulating the structure for the Roman Catholic Church. And Augustine had come to the conclusion by his studies in the Scriptures that Rome had replaced the city of Jerusalem, and that's where God dwelt. Don't you know that Rome today is where God lives on this ant plan? Don't you know the Pope is God incarnate, the vicar of Christ, God incarnate? Don't you know that they teach and believe that He is Christ on this earth, incarnate in a man right now? Augustine taught in the book of the city of our God that God had predestined. Ah, here it comes. God had predestined. Rome to take over being the city of God from Jerusalem and the Roman Catholics to become the true Christians over the Christ killers and the Jews. You realize it was just in Vatican II about 1978 or somewhere in there that one of the popes uh, just uh, vindicated the Jews for killing Christ? Nice of him, wasn't it? 
You realize that before that time that they looked at the Jews as Christ killers? You know why that when Adolf Hitler came into power in 1933, you know who got him into power? The ones that got him into power were the German Catholic League and the Businessman League in Germany. You realize when the SS guys like uh, uh, Klaus Barbie and, uh, and uh, uh, Eichmann and all those guys that were the SS death camp guys that killed all the Jews, you know how they got in South America? There was an article in the Kansas City Star about, what, four or five years ago, laid the whole thing out. You know how those guys, those Nazi war criminals, got down into South America and Central America and Bolivia and down through there? They got smuggled in through a Roman Catholic monastery in Germany that snuck them in and snuck them out as Roman Catholic priests with forged papers from the Vatican and got him in there. Say, where do you find that? It's a conspiracy, folks. They hide that stuff in books. That's your man, is it? That's the guy God was using, huh? You see, predestination was around before Calvin, just in the Roman Catholic Church. Calvin worshipped the ground Augustine walked on. Calvin embraces philosophy to such a great degree, it's unbelievable in his writings. In fact, his contemporaries, the guys that are doing around the Reformation, his contemporaries called him the, how would you like to have this title as a pastor or a theologian? The Aristotle of the Reformation. The Aristotle of the Reformation. You know who Aristotle was? The Greek philosopher? You know, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato. There was another one whose name was a Sophocles. His stuff was kind of tough to swallow. <laughs> really? That's your man, is it? The great Aristotle of the Reformation? I guess you never read Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, did you? There's two warnings in your Bible that every Christian is given. The first one's in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. The second warning, a Calvinist wouldn't know either one of them. The second warning is over there in Timothy about science falsely so-called. You know what your first warning is in the Bible in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8? That you, as the true church, are told to stay away from 100% of the time. Don't let it in. Don't have anything to do with it. Here's what it says, Colossians 2, 8. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy. There it is. There it is. Through philosophy and vain deceit. Remember the conceited brethren they talked about in the dedicatory? There they are. After the tradition of men and the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Then let me jump just ahead of here a minute. That Reformation theology or Calvinism or predestination is based on this. Two philosophers. One unsaved. One, well, we'll have to see. I'm not sure. I'll tell you what. If Calvin believed what he really wrote, if Calvin, I don't know his heart. I wasn't living back then, but all I have is what he writes. But if Calvin believed what he really wrote, and Calvin held to his beliefs that he really wrote, and he really believed that, Calvin is in the lake of fire this, or in hell this morning. If he believed what he wrote, I don't know if he did or he didn't, but if he believed what he wrote, about salvation coming to a man through the Mass and the, and, and, and the Bible and water baptism, if he really believed that stuff that he wrote about, you tell me how he got to heaven. And that's your man? That's what you're basing this on? You ever read his testimony? His testimony is one of the shakiest conversions. It's like a lot of yours. They bother me. I mean, if somebody comes in and says, well, I was saved when I was three years old. I remember the day. You know, ask Christ, come my heart and save you. Okay, well, that's nice. See you. Hmm. Saved when you were three years old. 
Man, is that before you dirtied your diapers or right after? I mean, you can't, I mean, three years old. I actually had a person tell me that one time. I was saved when I was three years old. Wow. Well, that's about as close to the immaculate conception as you can get. I mean, uh, that's, that's good. That's good. I worry about things like that. I worry about people that, that say, oh, yeah, I was saved. Well, how were you saved? Oh, I don't know. I just, you know, I, just one day I got saved. That bothers me. There ought to be a time and a place in your life when you got on your knees and you asked Christ to come into your heart and save you, that'll be a time in your life when you know that you asked Christ to come in and save you. Maybe you can get out on your knees. Maybe you were walking. Maybe you were driving. Maybe whatever. But brother, it's a time when God came down and you know you and him did business. Amen. Calvin said, I had an experience. That's what he said. I had a conversion experience. And Ed would not talk about it publicly to anybody the rest of his life. Now, is that what a Christian is supposed to do? I mean, if you go to work tomorrow and somebody says, are you, say, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Could you, you know, I'm thinking about, how did you get saved? Oh, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Man, if you're saved, you want to tell everybody about it. I'm always skeptical of people and I say, yes, I, are you saved? Yes, I am, but that's my own business. Oh, okay, sorry. Well, let's talk about something else. My, you've gained a lot of weight. <laughs> you know. It's crazy. You got a man now, you got a man now who, put his, who was based on philosophy. We already know it's vain deceit. They're called conceited brethren in, in the dedicatory. Under the traditions of men and the rudiments of the world, five things not found in the Bible and not after Christ. There's your Calvinism. Now let me ask you a question. What was the motive behind what Calvin wanted to do? Well, first of all, it's to set up his own religious system. That's what he wanted to do. See, it wasn't possible up to this point because the Roman Catholic Church had everything under control. But he wanted, what he wants to do, where Augustine wrote the city of her God, and he brought Jerusalem as the city of God to now Rome, what, what Calvin wanted to do was take it from Rome and take it to Geneva, Switzerland. That's what he wanted to do. That's what he wanted to do. And so he sets himself up, he wants to set himself up as the Protestant Pope with his own heretical system of theology, which we know as Calvinism, predestination, Reformation theology. He wanted to be in the Protestant world what the Roman Catholic Pope was in the Roman Catholic world. So he sets up his own, he sets up his own system is exactly what he does. And of course, uh, you know, he provided the most, I mean, I mean when, when he did this, he, he develops his five points. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church had five points. Can't find them in the Bible. I gave them to you a couple of weeks ago. So he came up with five points. And you know, you know what church Calvin produced? And I, and I don't know why people just can't, I don't know why they can't see this. I mean, I look at it and I explain it and I think to myself, I, I, I mean, I am... This is so simple. I don't understand why somebody can't see it. Of course, but when you're conceited and you, you know, and you want to believe what you believe and you have an axe to grind against truth, then I guess that's how it works. But do you ever stop and look at the church that Calvin produced? Do you ever know what church he did produce? Do you? He produced the most boring, dry, dead, ecclesiastically screwed up hell hole that this world has ever seen outside of Rome. He produces the Presbyterian church. You know the Presbyterian church? The one who leads the fight today for gay and lesbian pastors in their church? 
You know the Presbyterian church, the one who want all the homosexuals to come in and, and, and be part of everything and they want them to you know, and just take over everything and just be that? You know, you're that church. I mean, the ones that lead the fight against everything that is against the Bible today. I mean, that's the church. Is that the true church? Is that the church that Jesus Christ built? Is that the church Jesus Christ and God decided to bring the truth through and down through there? Hey, the Presbyterian church doesn't start till the Reformation either. Yeah, I'll tell you what, when it comes to the Bible and the history and God's true line, Calvinists just don't have an IQ much above subplant life. It's tough. It's tough. It's tough. Now, here's what you got. You got a teaching that starts with an unsaved man, Calvin, 1,500 years after Christ, who got his theology from a demon-possessed church father, Augustine, who was in the Satan's church, Roman Catholic church, and he was a pagan philosopher, had one, not one bit of truth, and he certainly died and split hell wide open, Augustine. He builds and borrows five points from them that are not found anywhere in the Bible. He has a gap of 1,500 years of nobody believing what he believes outside the Roman Catholic Church, and then produces his own satanic church system that has sent more people to hell down through history than probably in any other situation other than the Roman Catholic Church. You realize that the Presbyterian Church always believed in infant baptism? They have their brand of sacraments, just like the Roman Catholic Church has sacraments. Do you ever see their, their, their guys? They wear black long robes, just like other gals wear white robes. They wear robes just like the Roman Catholic Church does. They have sacraments just like they do. They have their little things and in the, in the, all the little things that they say in their confessions just like the Roman Catholic Church does. It's all the same system. It's all the same system. All the same system. And this man who, in the church that he produces, believes, you know, salvation is by water baptism. Gays and lesbians are okay. No Bible, all, all millennial, no rapture. And they still teach predestination to this day. Good job. That, that, that's a good system to bring it through. Is there anybody, is there anybody who even knows a little bit about the Bible that would think there isn't something wrong with that teaching, that that teaching somehow God who has, who has absolutely annihilated and put himself so far from those kinds of churches and teachings, and they have never been part of the true line. They have never been a true church. They never will be the true church. They're, they're, they're in the other side, and they never were part of what God was doing. Why in the world would God suddenly bring it through that system, but then not give you anything else? And of course, here's the answer they'll give you. And I get this all the time. The answer they'll give you, it's not much of an answer. In fact, it's a very lame answer. It has nothing to do with answering where they're at for 1,500 years. It has nothing to do with anything about God or the Bible. It just has to do with the fact that, uh, of what they know and what they see. Here's what they'll tell you. guy told me one time when I laid some of this stuff out, he said, well, how do you explain all of the great Christians down through history to believe Calvinism? I said, well, let me think about that for just a second. How do I explain that? How about there's dumb people back then just like there are now? Did that work for you? Works for me. Why, did stupidity just come in with you? I mean, do you, I, mean I realize that if you, know, if you had an original thought about the Bible or church history, you would die of boredom in 30 seconds, but did, did it start with you? No, there's dumb people back then just like there is people today who buy into anything 
you find Baptists from 1600 on who believe in, in Calvinism? Absolutely. Do you find some of the church fathers that you'll read back there in church history who were great preachers that believed in Calvinism? Sure. What's that prove? I know people today who are good preachers and they're good people and they're so screwed up that, you know, that they've got bad doctrine in their life. What does that prove? Now, let me tell you the key difference. And here's some of the people that they brought up. Now, we have in our book stack back there a book by a guy by the name of A.W. Pink. We call him Arthur Pink. Let me tell you something. Arthur Pink was a Calvinist. In fact, we have his books, some of his books back there, and uh, in one of his, in his early book in Genesis, he, he, you're reading the preface, and right in the middle of it is, there is the eternal decree and the sovereignty of God, stuck right in the middle of it. I want to tell you something. Arthur W. Pink and his books, for the most part, are some of the greatest devotional material you'll ever get in your life. If you want to sit down and you want to see the personal application to some of the scriptures in your life, his books are absolutely phenomenal. Arthur Pink couldn't lay out for you the millennial reign of Christ if his life depended on it. He never wrote one book about any doctrinal things in the Bible. It's all milk stuff. It's stuff that's good. But he couldn't tell you, he wouldn't lay out for you the millennial reign of Christ or eternity or Genesis 1-1 or, the Gen or Genesis chapter 6. He couldn't lay that stuff out as his life depended on it. You know why? This is why I'm on you all the time. Because the key to not getting messed up is knowing doctrine. Calvinists know no doctrine. Spurgeon was another one. Spurgeon, Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle in England. Spurgeon goes down in the history books as one of the greatest preachers and people you ever lived. Now, I never heard him preach. He got a lot of people saved. They have a series out called the Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle series of all his sermons. Preachers die to get that series. That thing probably cost you $600 and it's, it's, it's all of his sermons. Now, he was a saved man. He's in heaven. Let me tell you something. I have never, I'm confessing to you now, I have, I, I've been in guys' offices where they had those books up there, and I would look through their books, and I'd pick one of his off, and the guy would say, greatest set, son, greatest set of books, preaching material you ever get in your life. Really? Hmm. I think you're stupid. I've heard some of you do a devotion at base, softball, or volleyball, ten times better than his sermon notes. Maybe he was a great preacher, but I'll tell you one thing about his sermons absolutely milk. I don't think he ever preached on the second coming of Christ one day in his life. I don't think he ever preached on a rapture of the church one day of his life. I, I don't think he ever preached on a judgment seat of Christ. It's soul winning stuff. It's winning people to Christ. But there's no depth to it. Let me tell you something. You've got to have some stability. You know why those guys get messed up on Calvinism? Because they had no basic foundation of doctrine in their lives. You give me somebody who knows the Bible... You give me somebody who knows doctrine, I'll show you somebody who will never, never get caught up in those heresies. See, this is why, this is why I spend the time with you that I do. 
This is why I bug you to death about learning the Bible. This is why I'm always finding creative little ways to, to get the Bible to you. This is why I want to do what we want to do here on our Saturdays through this summer. Take the younger ones that really solidify you. So you come down at the end of the summer and you say, man, that Bible goes together for me now. I understand the component side of it. I understand how that thing goes together. Now, I'm never going to hear Bob again. I'm never going to read a book again. I'm never going to read a book of the Bible again that I'm not going to know where I'm at and where I'm going to put this. That's doctrine. You have got to learn those things. Those are the things that make the difference between staying solid or becoming caught up into heresies. We got the great teachers today. Both of you know John MacArthur, great radio guy. He's a Calvinist. Chuck Swindle. You know him as Chuck Swindle. We call him Chuck the Swindle. Calvinist. I mean, Warren Wiersbe, he's dead now. Great Bible lecturer. Calvinist. They all went Calvinist before they died. And yeah, you're sure, you're, somebody says, well, you know what, there's Baptists that believe that. So what? There's Baptists who don't know anything about the Bible. I never met too many that did know anything about the Bible. And I'm telling you, it isn't about who's who. It isn't about, well, dropping a name. Well, he believes it, so it must be true. Give me a break. It's true or not true, based on the elements in the Bible, not who holds to it. Somebody said one time, well, Spurgeon was a Calvinist. And I said, yeah, he was, wasn't he? I said, and this is, you know, I love this stuff. He said, well, Spurgeon was a Calvinist. And I said, yeah, he was. Spurgeon also smoked cigars all of his life. Imagine the greatest, but if you come, you saw me out walking down the street, and I got a big old stogie in my mouth. Hey, how you doing? Praise the Lord. <laughs> all of his life. All of his life he smoked cigars. He didn't want to give it up, couldn't give it up, or decided he just was going to keep them. I don't know. And I said, so you smoke cigars too? Well, no, no. Well, well if, he's, if, he's, if, he can be, if he's if he can be wrong in cigars, you know where this is going? Then he can be wrong in Calvinism. I said, it's just that simple. No man's perfect. You don't, I hope you don't base what you know about the Bible on basically because of me and my personality and what I tell you. I hope you go into the book and find out if I'm telling you the truth or not. I got no stake in this except to teach you the truth. Somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, they said, well, what is your accountability factor to the church? You know what my accountability factor is? I got enough of you around here that know the Bible. The first time I step out of line and teach something that's wrong, you're going you're gonna to wrap me out. You know what most preachers never do? They never take you to that level. You know why? Because they don't want you to rat them out. They don't want you to know less than they do. And that way they can always get away with anything they want to get away with. You can't pull nothing over on most of you guys. Even some of you midline Christians has been around for two, three years. If I get up here and said something off the wall, you'd know in a heartbeat it wasn't the right thing to say. That's, that's the accountability factor. I had a Calvinist one time and he said, and he guy calls me all the time. He lives out in the West Coast. He calls me all the time with deep questions about the Bible, you know. He teaches the Bible study out there, and he's a, he's a, I don't think he's a, he's a, he's a teacher or someplace in a church out there, and he's always, he's Calvinist. And I've got, I've probably got 20, 35 Calvinist friends, and so he'll call me up, and, and I'll, and I never bring up anything about Calvinism, but he irritates me sometimes, because this guy, this guy, he knows Calvinism. He died by Calvinism. He believed Calvinism is the only way in the whole wide world and Calvinism is everything. 
And you know, you, if you ain't a Calvinist, you ain't nobody. You got a t-shirt that says that. If you ain't Calvinist, you ain't nobody. No. And, and, and so I asked him one time. I, he called me up and he wanted, and he's always called me up. What, can you break out Genesis 6 for me? Can you tell me what happened between Genesis 1, 1, 1, 2? Can you lay this out for me? Can you help me with this? Break down the tribulation period for me. How, the, how does this all work? And I asked him one day. I said, you know what? I said, it just seemed, it just struck me. I said, if you're a Calvinist and you got the eternal decrees of predestination and all the deep things of the Bible, how did you, how did, how did you miss all this other deep stuff? And I said, if you believe pink and you believe Spurgeon, and you believe, you know, all these guys, instead of calling me, why don't you go buy Spurgeon's book on Genesis chapter 6? Why don't you get Warren Wearsby's book on the gap? Why don't you get, why don't you get Swindoll's book on the eternity? Why don't you get, why don't you get Arthur W. Pink's book on the, on the, on the structure of the New Testament church and doctrinally laying out the two lines? You know why you don't, I'll answer that question for you. You know why you don't go to their books? Because they don't have any books on that. You know who you come to get your answers on that? A guy that you think isn't quite up to par with you on the Bible because I don't believe predestination, but you still got to come to me to get your truth. See? It's like a, people leaving the church and saying, well, I don't like him because he's a heretic and I'm not going to go back to that church and then getting somebody and say. You get the tapes for me so I can listen to them behind our back. <laughs> I think I just fixed your problem. <clears throat> I love life. How come Clarence Larkin got his books back there? How come he didn't get caught up in predestination? Dwight Pentecost got some of his stuff back there. George, uh, uh, George Wilson. We don't have any of his stuff back there, but uh, George Wilson was a math professor at Oxford in 1710. He wrote a 650,000-page uh, booklet on how the second coming of Christ had to take place by uh, and bloke the thing down. Never in, never in 400 years has anybody ever, 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 ever refuted one word that he said. How come he didn't get caught up in it? How come Sir Robert uh, Anderson... You know what book he wrote? We don't have it back there. We ought to get it sometime. It's called The Coming Prince. He wrote this in 1800. The Coming Prince. Sir Robert Anderson, English guy. The Coming Prince. Greatest book on the market on the Antichrist and who he is. How come he didn't get caught up in it? How come he didn't get caught up in that stuff? How about J. Vernon McGee? How come he didn't get caught up in it? How about Henry Ironside? How come he didn't get caught up in it? How about Dick Wilson? How come he didn't get caught up in it? How about Dick Clark? Oh, that was American Bandstand. I'm sorry. <laughs> I get a rut on these names, and they all start going together. I had, I had Audie Murphy and John Wayne in here, too, but I think we won't put those in here. You know why? Because they're doctrinal. They taught doctrine. Now, kids, I'm telling you, this is why I push it, and I push it, and I push it for you to learn doctrine. This is why I hold your feet to the fire. This is why I take the time on Thursday night and all the times that we go through the Bible. This is why I created the Bible Institute. This is why, again, I want to do with you young Christians. If you don't learn doctrine, you're not going to have the stability in your life to be and do what God wants you to do. It takes the doctrine to get that foundation laid in your life that you don't get caught up in these things. And uh, you, you know what? You've you got to have it. If you don't have it, you don't have any roots. You don't have any foundation. 
And when you're dealing with a Calvinist, you're dealing with a non-biblical system that has absolutely no Bible doctrine associated with it in any way, shape, or form. A system that was started by an unsaved man, propagated by a demonic church, a system without a 1,500-year gap that no New Testament foundation or structure as a system that was ever connected with it in any way, shape, or form. It started wrong, and it's wrong today. It's a system that you cannot trace it to the true church, the true line, and what they believe. And again, I tell you, you see, you got an argument if you think that a Baptist church is the true church. Because then you can say, well, I know so-and-so, he's a Baptist and he's a Calvinist, so therefore, based on the fact that he's a Baptist and he's a Calvinist, that, that it must be okay. Again, the true church is never defined by a name. The true church is defined by what the true church believes. And that is the true line from Antioch where they're first called Christians and you run right through that thing. That's why, that's why the books are reversed. That's why Genesis is first and then, uh, then you got uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the four historical books. That's first and that's the way it works because it's history is going on and you got a recorded history from Genesis in your Bible all the way up. But when you get to the New Testament and you have, you, when Christ shows up, hey, when he goes back, when he goes back after Matthew, who recorded after that? How come nobody's walking around recording our history for the next part of the Bible? How come in, in 500, 200 A.D., 300 A.D., nobody was running around writing the Bible in the New Testament like they were doing in the Old Testament? That's why it's reversed. Genesis is the book of the beginning. It defines everything that you need to know and then gives you a historical timeline. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right down the line till Christ shows up. When Christ shows up, there is no timeline going on from there. So he had to give you something that would get you through New Testament history when there was no written revelation of it like there was in the Old Testament. Do you know what he did? He reversed the books. He put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the historical books, first. Then he put the book of Acts in next because the book of Acts is what everything in it that defines what you and I to look for in the New Testament. If you knew the book of Acts, just, if you just knew the book of Acts this morning, which some of you do because we went through an institute, if you knew the book of Acts this morning, you'd know why Calvinism is worthless. You know why? You'd know what the true church believed because it's defined in the book of Acts. And that's the system that a Calvinist could never get. Why? Because he doesn't know his Bible. He doesn't know his Bible. He doesn't know church history. He's got a couple of little things out of the Bible that aren't even really in the Bible. And that's what he's dealing with. And you know why Calvinism won't work? Except the Lord build a house. They labor in vain to build it. God didn't build that house. Calvin built that house. Augustine laid the foundation. And John Calvin put up the walls and put on the roof. And everybody else today thinks, wow, look at this. This is really nice. And they have no idea that it's not in the Bible. And if they understood where it really came from, the church that it come through, and the church that fostered the idea, and the man that started it, and the church he produced, was never part of the New Testament line. Therefore, the teaching has never been part of the New Testament church. You can't separate Bible principles from Bible history. And you know, the greatest thing that you got, and there's several things in here, but one of the greatest things you got is the concept of the two landmarks. You know, we take that backdoor approach to the, uh, to the Calvinist. 
But it, that thing, where the, except the Lord build the house, the labor in vain to build it, it works in every cult on the planet. Next time the Jehovah Witnesses come to your door, simply ask them where they were before 1850. There isn't anybody on the face of this planet that believes what the Jehovah Witnesses believes until Rutherford and Russell show up and concoct it together in 1850. Nobody. Nobody. There isn't a, they, they don't have an answer to you to that uh, because they're not geared. If you want to watch them squabble sometime and squirm, ask them that question. And you know what? You know how they want to pin you down when they come to your door? Well, you watch them try to get away and then you just pin them down. I walked one all the way down the street one time. Now, he came to my door and he said, hi, I'm a Jehovah Witness. And I said, well, that's great. I'm a Jehovah Witness, too. I mean, there's two of them, a little guy and a big guy. You know, always come in twos. That's about the only thing biblically got. And he says, you're a Jehovah Witness? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, well we didn't know the Jehovah Witnesses around here. We know all of them. And I said, oh, yeah. I said, and then the big guy says, well, when did you become a Jehovah Witness? And I said, oh, about 1971 when I, <coughs> I uh, asked Jesus Christ, Jehovah God, to come into my heart and save me from a literal burning fire and eternal damnation. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 1 that once we're saved, we're to be witnesses unto him. Therefore, I'm a Jehovah Witness. The little guy looked at the big guy and he said, well, that's not the kind we are. <laughs> I said, that's the only kind there is. You guys must be phonies. <laughs> He said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, no, let me ask you a question. I said, you know what? I've been thinking about changing churches. And I think I like to be a Jehovah Witness. I mean, I like the idea you always wear ties and your hair's not and you wear it around. I guess you probably go out to eat a lot after you do these door-door things. That appeals to me too. And I said, uh, but I got one question. You answer me this question. And I said, I'll leave right now. I'll go down to Kingdom Hall. I'll get baptized and I'll become the best convert you ever had. And he said, well, 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 what's that? Just like that. And I said, you believe that you guys have the truth. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And you believe that all other religions are dying and going to hell and you're the only truth? Yeah, that's true. I said, let's just be honest now because I really want this. And he said, yeah, absolutely. You have the only truth in the world. I said, yes. I said, okay. Here's the only question I have. Name me one Jehovah Witness in 1700. What's well, in there? I see it's going up and down. Can you say something with it? <laughs> Seventeen hundred. One. Just give me one. Well, no, 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 one. Well, I can see you're argumentative. <laughs> Just give me one. Well, thank you for your time. Oh, start to walk down my phone. No, you ain't getting away that early. No. no. I, I walked down the Just one. Give me one. I'll tell you what. Sixteen hundred. Can I have one in sixteen hundred? Just give me one. Well, no, we're, 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 just please walk. I said, I want to be a Jehovah Witness. I just want to know, where were your roots? Uh, you're the one true church. Jesus Christ is Jehovah God. Uh, you're Jehovah God, and you want all that. Uh, I'm with you. I want to be one. I want to walk the streets like you. I want to wear a little name tag. Well, they're morons. I'm Mormons. I'm not the same group. And I want to do all the things that you do. I want to be a JW. Just answer that one question. They didn't have any answers. You know why they have any answers? There are no answers. You know how they survive? You know how the Mormons survive? Mormons, 1830. Joe Smith, right around here someplace, digging in his backyard. Got one of them new metal detectors. <laughs> Found the golden tablets. Pulls those up there, looks up, and there's a big 600-foot angel there called Moriah. 
Mariah says, you got it, son, right there. You got what you need. That's the truth. You're up, man. You're in. That's how it started. Church of Christ. Alexander Campbell. What, 1840? Used to be a Baptist, got mad and split the church and started his own religion. Some of the most demonic people you ever meet in your life. It works for any of them. Any of them. Charismatic movement. Well, you can really have some fun with them because they're, they're dumber than anybody. They walk around speaking in tongues. I, I had, I, honest, this is the honest to goodness truth. I was sitting someplace the, uh, two or three weeks ago, I forget where I was, and somebody was talking to me. And, uh, oh, I know where it was. I was out at a uh, buddy's church, and we had a, a, at a, 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 a astronomy meeting out there, and there's a charismatic lady that comes out there. And she's a nice lady, but she's, you know, she's typical. I mean, you know, and she came up to me. She knows I'm a Baptist, and she knows she'd like to give me a little dig sometimes. And she knows she'd like to give me a little dig sometimes. And so she's telling me, she says, you know what? She says, the most believable thing, Brother Bob, happened at our church last weekend. I said, what was that? She said there was a man that had a leg one shorter than the other. And she said he came forward, and she said they touched him, and his leg grew right on the spot. I said, you mean kind of like this? Said, Put your hand on my head. Thank you. I said, that's amazing. That's amazing. I said, it really happened? Oh, it really happened. I said, tell you what, do you have his phone number? Because I got two friends that got dying of cancer. They need his help. You know, when we're done with that, you know where we're going to go? We're going to go to Children Mercy Hospital. Now, maybe they won't believe us right out of the chute because you walk into the hospital and say, hey, I'm here to heal everybody. <laughs> we'll try to get past a water test where you walk on it, you know. <clears throat> i tell you this story. Years ago, I was at a church that didn't like me very well. <clears throat> and I used to do all the baptism. And their baptism, people didn't like me. And their baptism come down the steps it was deep, and then went up the steps. And it was up behind the choir. And I always had to wear a white robe, which I hated. You wear waders underneath, but a white robe. So, and I baptized people, and I'd walk down there, and it was boring, you know, and I'd be splashing water in the choir, you know, and things like that, you know. <laughs> and so one time I had to, and I really got in trouble for this, but it was hilarious. place cracked up. I took a two-by-six and laid it from the step to the step. Now, they couldn't see the two-by-six. See, this is a true story. So I'm standing there, and, they, and I know when the cue is for baptism. <laughs> this is a true story. I got, I got so much trouble for this. And so I got this white rope on. And I got to tell you, in a white rope, I look pretty heavenly. And so I'll tell you that. <clears throat> so this two by six is across the top steps, you know, just right above the water. <laughs> and so... The choir's done. They all sit down, and the music starts playing for baptismal. So I start walking across like this, and I and I get out the bed. I says, "Man, I hate when this happens." You know, I walk through the other side. <laughs> oh man, oh boy. Right then, I needed that J truck driving school card in my wallet to tell me <clears throat> they don't have any answers. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain. I don't care what cult. You're dealing with a Methodist, a Presbyterian, a Episcopalian, and a Greek and Roman Orthodox. They're called Protestants. You know why they're called Protestants? They're not the true line. You know why they're called Protestants? Because they protested. They come out of the Reformation. They're not part of the true church. A true church has never been defined by what it's called. A true church is defined by what it believes. That's why you got Baptists that are heretics, just like you got Baptists that are Bible believers. 
That's all there is to it. Just because you're stupid, don't think that you're the only stupid person in the world. There were stupid people all through the world. You just happen to be stupid today. Can't get around the landmarks. And see, and this is why. My job is to get you to the point where you understand doctrine. It's really the only purpose I have in teaching you the Bible. If I just gave you the milk toast stuff that gets you through, and, 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 you know, the, and, and I'm not saying the practical is not important, but there has to be a balance in it. You have to know who you are in Christ. You have to know why you believe what you believe, and you have to know how to go to the Bible to show what you believe, and you have to know in time what everybody else believes and how to go to the Bible and to history. Because except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build. That's one of the greatest principles you ever get in your life. Calvinism is a heresy. And when you're dealing with a Calvinist, you're dealing with some nice, very nice people, some people I know that are some of the finest people in the world. They're just absolutely off the wall when it comes to the Bible. I wouldn't let them teach daily vacation Bible school to the three-year-olds back there. I wouldn't trust them that far with the Bible. They know nothing about the Bible. If they knew the Bible, they wouldn't be a Calvinist. Just like if you knew the Bible, you wouldn't be a Jehovah's Witness. If you knew the Bible, you wouldn't be a, you wouldn't be a Campbellite. If you knew the Bible, you wouldn't be anything but a Bible-believing Christian. Calvin was not a Bible-believing Christian. I'm not even sure he was a Christian, but he certainly came to the point where he believed nothing that the true line, the true church. And the, now this church, I try to keep it as close to the New Testament as possible. I know we're called a Baptist church, but I still believe that that, that Baptist distinctive name is a very good name when it's explained. And when I, somebody said, what kind of church do you have? I said, I'm a Baptist with an explanation. <clears throat> you know, I like to explain my position. Uh, because there's too many goofy Baptists out there that are like everybody else. Bottom line is simply this. We believe the Bible. You see, what we ought to call ourselves is the Bible-believing church and just leave it go at that. But then that would look weird too. So I took a name that was as close as I could get it out of a Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. And I picked that name for a reason. It's a telltale name. Because the name says Old Pass Baptist Church because it's out of Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16 that says they're told Jeremiah tells the nation of Israel to get back to the old paths because they've strayed into the new paths and there's nothing there and God's on the old path. I thought that was a good, a good... I wanted the name to say more. I wanted to say... I wanted to state where we're at. I wanted everybody to know. And it's good for me because I can tell in a heartbeat who knows their Bible, who doesn't. I'll talk to Christians and say, what's the name of your church? Old Pass Baptist Church. Well, where'd you get that at? Out of the Bible? <laughs> Jeremiah? You know, he had an aunt, Aunt Jeremiah? Aunt Jeremiah? I said, Jeremiah chapter 6. Oh, 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 yeah. You know Jeremiah's book in the Old Testament? It says something. Because I think we live in a day and age where we ought to, everything we do ought to say something. And it says something about where we're at with the Bible. Because the Bible is everything. Bible doctrine is the key. And in a world that's fast fading and charading as far as God's people are in the screwed up world that we're in, you know what? This church needs to stand. It needs to stand for the doctrinal truth and I need, it needs to be taught to you guys. And that's why I want to do this thing with you younger Christians that bring you up to speed as far as getting that thing. If you, I'm going to try to have it set up for next week where I have the sign-ups for next week. I've got to see my schedule to see what time in June we can. But we'll do one Saturday in June, one Saturday in July, and one Saturday in uh, August. And you'll have work to do in between the two. And uh, it'll be something that if you give me that time and you're serious about putting the Bible together, you will, you will gain about six years 
in three months. I guarantee you. If you do what I ask you to do and do what I tell you to do. And I'm going to say it again. Don't be like you were with Scott and Barb and, uh, and the people that did their deal where you sign up, you know, all get excited, you sign up, and then, you know what, two weeks later after you started, you, you bail out. You know what? Don't worry about it. Because uh, you, will, you will not get anything out of this if you do that. You're gonna, it's going to be designed that you get everything. And, and, and the, the tapes will not help you because it's going to be stuff that we're going to do right there on the spot that you're going to do with me. If we do it right there, that you have to be there to do it, you will never get it on the tape. So you pray about it, think about it, and that's where we'll go. When we're dismissed this morning, make sure, if you haven't already, you get your softball application in. Please sign up for the, uh, for the uh, Memorial Day picnic. Let's get that taken care of and pick up your T-bone your tickets back there if you've got them paid for or pay for them, pick them up, whichever.